The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living. I just want to say I'm very honored here today, um, in general, because this is probably, I think, my 10th or 11th year on Voice America, and also very excited and honored because I'm interviewing Really, I think an icon in the world of spirituality. My guest is Thomas More. He is the author of the best-selling books, Care of the Soul, Soulmates, and Dark Nights of the Soul, as well as many others. He was a monk for 12 years, a musician, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. And today, Thomas More lectures on holistic medicine, spirituality, psychotherapy, and the arts. He has a Ph.D. in religion from Syracuse University and has won several awards for his work, including an honorary doctorate from Leslie University and the Humanitarian Award from the Einstein Medical School at Yeshiva University. His three books have won Books for a Better, books for a Better Life Award, and he writes regular columns for Psychology Today, Spirituality and Health, Resurgence, The Huffington Post. He's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, The Today Show, Sunday Morning, and has had his, his own PBS special called A Celtic Christmas with Thomas More. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me, Patricia. I usually, it's a long bio, but it's well-deserved, and I really want you to listen to hear all of that. I think most of it's true, too. <laughs> well, you know, you, you write about, the name of your new book is A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. What do you mean by that subtitle? Do you mean that a lot of us are not adhering to religious principles, but we're having to create our own? What do you think? Well, I think for a lot of people, we're, we're, we're in a time of great change, and people don't realize uh, what's happening to them. A lot of people today um, just can't uh, find it in themselves to go to church or synagogue or wherever the way they used to. Not everybody, but in large numbers. And so um, that is the main group that I'm addressing, although I think I also speak to people who still want to uh, remain practicing the way I always have, except to deepen it. So I think secularism is creeping even further all over us, and it does so in ways that are quite subtle. And, um, and so I'm writing this book to try to keep religion in the picture. That's so important. You know what, no matter what religion you are, I think it's so important for people to understand that there's a higher power, and we get proof of it every single day. The serendipities, the little miracles that happen, the things that seem like coincidences, but you know it couldn't be that way. I mean, how did you connect, for example, with that person that was perfect? 
how did that happen? And you needed something and they had it. And there's something greater at work here. And to comment on that. Well, yes, I I don't like to say what that is, you know, but I do think that we we live in a mysterious world. A lot of things happen that we that we can't explain and that are kind of stun us because they don't just follow the normal rules of lo- rules of logic. And um that's part of what I want to do. I want to speak for those things for living by intuition, by reading the signs, by paying attention to your dreams. Uh, things like that that may seem, uh, for some people, may seem illogical and even silly for some, but I think that um, most of us are aware that that there's a piece of life that can't be explained, and it's better to live in relation, uh, taking those things seriously, than to to just give up and surrender to the world of logic and measurement. Mm, yes, you know, I'm sure you've heard of um, the intention experiment by Lynn McTaggart. Lynn McTaggart is a scientist who did an experiment worldwide. This was one of the experiments in the book where they looked at a leaf and they tore the leaf and they asked millions of people from around the world to pray on this leaf and use the intention of it threading itself back together. And it did. Well, as I say, there are a lot of mysterious things um, uh, happening, and nature is one of them. You know, nature is something that we have explained so much that we think that nature works only according to the laws that we understand. Mm. But there are a lot of mysterious things going on in the natural world as well. And um, uh, so what I mean by religion is partly to take those things into account, to live in a bigger, more mysterious world. Mm. Give us an example of something that you think uh, exemplifies what you just said. Um, Well, uh, for me, one of the things that strikes me more than anything is is, uh, sickness. When people get seriously ill, Mm. I've been working a lot with doctors and nurses for 20 years now and uh, visiting hospitals and talking to a lot of patients in hospitals. And, you know, people people discuss their, their illness, so they discover they have cancer. And they ask questions like, where did this come from and why me and what am I going to mm. do now and what's it going mm. to do to my life? Mm-hmm. This is a mystery, and I don't think that our rational methods can deal with it effectively. So we have to have a religious sensibility and be able to to, uh, bring some reflection and some intelligence to those kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people in those experiences will start to blame themselves or they'll say, well, how did I create this? It was my fault. I did something. Well, that's that's an example of a sort of mechanistic philosophy of our time that if anything happens, someone's to blame. Instead of mm. instead of um, realizing that some things happen that are quite mysterious and will never be explained, and yet we can relate to those mysteries, and that's what religion has done for millennia. Mm. Yes, yes. And is that why there's so much wisdom in a lot of the biblical stories? It's just oh, yes. so much I mean, wisdom. There's, there's, there's so much wisdom and beauty and all the texts, the sacred texts, all around the world, there's so much there. So this was a big part of me. Uh, when I wrote this book, I, I wanted to be as clear as possible that 
I am speaking for the 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 a good future for religion. I wanted to use the word religion, although a lot of people are turned off by it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to use it be, uh, uh, partly because um, then this discussion re- will relate to the great traditions of the world that are full of beauty and wisdom. We don't have to invent and rediscover all of that. We just have to to have a different approach to the traditions, and we don't. We no longer have to decide whether we'll choose it or or be a member. Uh, you don't have to do that. You can you can really get into and study, uh, read, uh, mm-hmm. have some experience of another tradition, and be affected yeah. by it. You write about borrowing ideas and practices from the religions that you will encounter in your search. So yeah. you know whether it's Buddhism or Judaism or Islam or Christianity. There's there's so many things that you can borrow, and so. What do you suggest to people, that they just read and choose what resonates for them? Yes, I think it's important to choose what resonates for you. And because, you know, religion tends to be uh, uh, focused, not always, but often focused around words, it's not a bad idea to read some of the great texts. I always recommend that people start with the Tao Te Ching from China because it's very simple. It's short. You can read the whole thing in a, you know, about an hour. And it offers you a basis for establishing a spiritual life that's very solid and grounded. And so uh, I know that some people say, well, that's just, um, you know, the cafeteria approach. You're sampling this and that. It doesn't have to be done that way. It could be done in a more serious way. I don't mean you have to go and make a, you know, academic study of these religions, but you can... Uh, like as, like I said, you can read the text of the Tao Te Ching and really be affected by it and have it change the way you look at things from then on. Yeah. How do you listen to your intuition and then enrich your imagination? You write a lot about that in the book. Yeah. And we, we read so and, and learn so much about our intuition. And as you know, it, it's usually correct. How do we get? How can you help us more there in terms of following our instincts? Well, uh, the uh, int- intuition is something that is inborn in us. Uh, we don't have to learn it, really. We have to learn how to trust it and mm-hmm. learn maybe it's uh, you know how, how to deal with it effectively. Uh, there are a number of things you can learn. One is uh, understand that um, you know you're intuitively you may be wrong sometimes, and that's fine. When we try to be logical, we think if we make a mistake, we think you know we're at fault. We've really done something bad. But when you're living intuitively, you're going to make some mistakes, and you just let let them you know uh, go by. You don't pay too much attention, but you do learn eventually. I think you sharpen your skills at intuition over time if you have patience, and you and you don't get into a lot of self blame. You can really do that. Also, I recommend in the book that, that there are methods that will help you with intuition and I take them from the great traditions of the world so in China you might uh, try the uh, the I Ching which is a book that has little poetic statements connected to um, to lines and you use coins to to um, to choose which lines you're going to read and then you read them re- reflectively and it, get, it, it, it enhances and stimulates your intuition. It's not, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen in the future, nothing like that. 
it just stimulates your imagination. So I think it's not a bad idea to try different methods until you find one that really works for you. What about dream interpretation? Well, I've been a therapist now for 35 years. I've focused almost all my therapy all those years on on dreams. And I've always felt they were important, but in the past five or six years, that has intensified for me, the feeling that that dreams go so deep and they guide us so certainly. You know, if, if I know they're difficult to understand, but once you get familiar with that imagery of dreams, which is very close to the imagery of art, mm-hmm. when you do that, then you begin to see some of the patterns that lie very deep in your heart and you get to know yourself better and then you're freer to make choices based on that knowledge. And do you find that there are usually themes, like I know there's one dream that I will have recurring. Now, it goes away for long periods of time, and then it'll pop up again. But And yes. I'll tell you what it is, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's that dream of you can't find your way home. You're, you, you, you're, you're like in a maze, and, or you're somewhere, and you lost your keys, or you missed the yes. bus. But it's that, and it's this awful feeling of, oh, well, you know, where am I? Will I ever get there? Um, right. have, have you heard that before? I'm sure you have. Well, yes, and also I've heard those statements, of those feelings before from people. I mean, I don't think that's a terribly mysterious dream in a way. I mean, for the details of your experience would be something to take time with. But, you know, I think a lot of us feel at different times in life that uh, if only we had a place that we could feel we can rest and finally mm. we've got here and... There are so many obstacles to getting to that place. Some people feel it at work. You know, where am I, when am I finally going to get the job that really satisfies mm-hmm. me that I was meant to do? So that kind of feeling, I think, is probably represented in your dream. Although, as I said, we'd have to really look at it closely to see very specifically how it relates to you. Mm, interesting. So it's it's that it's it's kind of an uneasiness about completion. And and I can I can understand that that would resonate for me. It does. Partic- uh-huh. Yeah, particularly when you're you know when you're in like my work is very entrepreneurial in a sense. I'm always yeah. doing new things and carving out new territory. And if things don't gel right away, and you want closure and you don't get it, right. <laughs> you know, and you think well, it's going to happen know, for, and then it changes. <laughs> you know, for me, if I can if I can take a moment to that, if supposing it were my dream. Yeah, My experience please. is, you were saying, you know, that I, I was a university professor one time, and one of the things that I liked about it was that I had a home. I had a university that I could I could rest on, you know. I mean, they, they offered me, you know, a living and some safeguards and that kind of thing and community, all kinds of stuff. And then I left, and now I'm a writer, and I'm all on my own. You know, nobody's there to, to support me. So I don't have that home anymore. And that, every once in a while, I have this thought, if only somebody would call me up and offer me a job at a university. (laughs) Not that I really want it, but that that sense of home was attached to it, and I miss that. Yes, and that that happens to me when I get frustrated. You know, I, I mean, this is just too, it's too iffy. But then, but then there are so many rewards that go with that. And so you work through it and you move on again. But, but, um, do you suggest that if people are having recurring dreams that they get a book that might help them interpret it, 
or they get some help because that's so much part of your subconscious. And if you understand it, then it will help you move ahead, I would think. Well, the trouble is, I haven't seen all the books, obviously, but so many that I look at on the bookshelves are a little too simple. You know, they, they give very yeah. simple... Uh, yeah, like uh, if like you dream about a snake, this means, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think that helps too much. I, I think it's better to take a little time to get to know images. That's why I recommend people who are interested in their dreams also um, go to art galleries and... Pay close attention to the images because when you look at your dreams, you're going to see some of those same themes that you found in art or in the study of mythology or literature. Well, you know, what you're saying, Thomas, I think helps us to feel not quite so separate. You know, when we're going through things, we feel, oh, we're the only one who's ever gone through this. Oh, yes. Instead of, you know, people, thousands of people in the millenniums and centuries have been through this, and you can find that connection if you look for it. Well, you know, what I find in my experience is that I often give workshops to groups, small groups. So I mean like, you know, 20, 30, something like that, 40. And um, it's for many people, it's the first time that they've ever got together with others in a group and talked openly about things that are happening to them in a deep way that are really meaningful. I think our conversation generally is so superficial that that's one reason why we don't realize that other people have some of the same emotions and experiences that we have, the same thoughts. You get people together and begin to open up, and everyone's kind of shocked. They say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And many people do feel that, well, I guess I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that feels this way. Yeah, yeah. You also write about, in, in along that same line, you write about coming to terms with our spiritual angst and turmoil but not becoming discouraged. So do you think that that kind of support group would be one way to help you? A, a group is very helpful. You know, if you can find one, or if you're very lucky to find a group you're comfortable with, it can be very, very useful. If people can, uh, can speak seriously, I never say that people should open up and say everything. You know, I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. important that we have some private parts to ourselves mm-hmm. and that we don't say everything, but... It's important to be able to speak from the heart and, and at a serious level with other people. That's, that's really very, very helpful. Mm. One of the other things you write about, and I, I'd like to sh- talk about this, is exploring your sexuality within a spiritual framework instead of uh, a, a list of what not to do. Well, I bring that up because, probably because I was brought up a Catholic, you know, and the Catholic Church has never been really great at getting spirituality and sexuality together. And a lot of other churches have had trouble with it as well. So I bring that up because I think that unless we can uh, uh, feel okay about our sexuality and, and still want to be spiritual, that we're going to live a split life. And uh, we might be using spirituality as a way to avoid our sexuality or to get it so much under control that we think we're dealing with it. Um, and that's not going to work. I think it's a much better way to be happy uh, with our erotic life and our sexual life is to have a spiritual outlook on everything we do. And in that regard, then, um, sex doesn't get out of hand. I think, I think we get in trouble sexually when we repress it. I remember I once wrote an article for Huffington Post saying that um, 
you know, the trouble with America is that it doesn't have enough sex. You know, it's that it's, it's just the opposite of what appears to be because all the, the attention giving to sexuality is an indication that uh, we haven't really dealt with it. That, that's extreme. Uh, we act it out. And so that means we, we really are not sexual enough. Well, and I think that it gets confusing uh, because now we get into the whole sexual addiction. Well, now you're sexually, and we get, and the label comes up. You know, if you've had too much sex or you've done something, now you're an addict. So, and then right. you're bad. So it, it's confusing. It is. It's very confusing. Well, the whole thing is confusing. And I think we could sort it out some if we could deal with our guilt or if we could. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it's quite an achievement just to think about sexuality, their sexuality, in a very positive, accepting, and mm-hmm. loving way. That's mm-hmm. not easy to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and that it's okay. That it's and okay that to have that expression. Okay. Perfectly okay. Yeah. You and know, healthy. And that you can forgive yourself for having made mistakes in the past. That's another yes. important part yeah. of your spiritual yeah. sexuality. Yeah. Now, you also talk about understanding, oh, this is big, waiting. <laughs> That's something I need. And cultivating waiting as a spiritual skill that can allow you to hear the voice of your creative muse. And I know I'm not alone there. You know, we're, we're a very impatient culture. Yes. Yes, you know, when I, when I was a monk, um, that was a long time ago, but I remember it so well. And uh, I think what I learned there was patience. Uh, we did nothing too fast. You know, the days went by kind of according to a pretty tight schedule, and um, we weren't rushing around. There was an atmosphere of calm. I've tried to bring that into my home. Uh, we, we've tried to, my wife and I both, we try to create a, a home that has a certain quiet, almost monastic feel to it without being heavy. I don't want to do that. There's a lot of fun and a lot of music and playing in our house, but there was in the monastery too. It's just that there was a, an overall atmosphere of calm. And I think we need that. In fact, there's a chapter in my book uh, on using um, monks as an example of what we could do, both in our own lives and in our society. And one of those things would be to have more opportunities for peace and calm, even even in our towns and even in our cities, to have places where we could really feel quiet and, and retreat. Well, true. And, um, and, and I, one of the things you talk about in your book is how do you practice those rituals of meditation before breakfast or at certain periods of the day that mm. kind of frame your day for you? Yes. It helps with, um, we learn from the traditions of the world, all around the world, that if you want to practice religion, have a spiritual practice, um, then it should be regular. In other words, instead of making it up every day, if you had a practice where every day at a certain time you did something, or at a certain place, or maybe at certain times of the year, if, I, I recommend to people, if you're going to have your own religion, then have your own spiritual calendar. So it would be a calendar that not only has the solstice and Easter and Passover on it, but also might have a special day. Like the example I give is July 1st, where it was the date my my mother and father got married. It was also the day that my mother died. That's a very holy day for me. Mm-hmm. So I celebrate July 1st, and I, I do think some special things that are more contemplative on that day. 
that's my own practice, and nobody else, as far as I know, celebrates that day. But for me, it's one of the main days of my calendar. Mm. And that's so important, that honoring. I know that in, in the Jewish religion, you know, certainly when, when your loved one is coming up on their anniversary, their year every year, there are certain prayers that you do at certain times yes. to honor them. I think I, you know, even though I grew up a Catholic, I think I learned that as well from from uh, Jewish practice. I, yes. I have uh, several rabbis that I turn to for spiritual uh, guidance myself, and I really appreciate that because I think that's a strength in Judaism to be able to have that feeling of family and also the timing of ritual. It's very important. Yes, and they and they really utilize them, and it it really it really does work. Um, let's talk about negativity, anger, depression, those mm-hmm. tough feelings that you have. How do you keep those and yet still have a soulful experience? You know, how do we not, how do we not separate ourselves? It's kind of like the sexuality. We're trying to separate that from ourselves. Right. Same right. thing with anger and depression. It's like, I'm not angry. I'm not depressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, I think the opposite would not be a bad idea. Instead of denying it, would be to just um, be able to speak for your anger. You know, one of my my great friends who influenced me a lot, uh, a, a Jewish man, by the way, um, James Hillman, mm-hmm. um, psychologist. Uh, one thing I noticed about him, I spent a lot of time with him just as his friend, and um, he really was able to express his anger. He was one of the one of those people I've met who who could get angry, and yet he was not a chronically angry person. You know, some people you meet, they're always angry, and you don't want to be around them. Uh, James uh, was more someone who, went, if something went wrong, he could get angry for a few moments and then kind of let it go. But I learned that from him watching him, that, that the, probably one of the better ways to deal with anger is simply let it be. And, um, you know, people can deal with it, and... I know I was with him when he was uh, spending his last weeks before he died, and just I mean, so many people came to see him with tears in their eyes and, and wanting to hug and kiss him. And this was somebody who could express his anger, but that didn't, that didn't mean people didn't love him. Mm. You write one of your quotes is like all religion, we need to stand at the edge of our own existence and open to the full potency of what it means to be alive. So, you know, to the to the mysteriousness, to whatever we're going through. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's really the big part of religion. It's to feel that you're on the edge. You, you are standing at the end without knowing, without mm-hmm. knowing what the future will bring or yeah. what, without being able to explain everything. And there, without explanation, with just things like faith and hope and wonder, you stand there and you allow life to happen. And I think that is one of the greatest things you can do as a religious person. And mm-hmm. if you can't do that, if you have to have explanations everywhere and you have to be able to predict the future, you're living in a secular world. You know, there's no space there. There's no room for the infinite, for that which is beyond you. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the symbol of that might be to stand at the edge of the ocean and meditate or to look out at the sky. So I, I really um, write a great deal about the sky because the sky is an image for that infinite 
that that is the, uh, the infinite that stands there at the edge of our own experience. Mm-hmm. This is so meaningful and 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 really enlightening. I really appreciate you being on the program. What is the? Let's talk about your book again and let people know how they can get a copy of it. It's a religion of one's own. The subtitle is A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World by Thomas More. And he's the best-selling author of Care of the Soul and Dark Nights of the Soul. How can people get a copy of your book, Thomas? Well, they can get it, um, they can get it by uh, going to my website, for one thing, careofthesoul.net. And uh, there are different places there they can just click on and order it. Or you can better, better go to your local bookstore. I've been visiting many independent bookstores in the past few weeks, and uh, I'm encouraging people to go to their independent bookstores because the bookstore is also a sacred place and could be part of mm-hmm. your own religion. You yes. have to cultivate that and appreciate it. I want to read on the back cover of your book, John Bradshaw wrote a beautiful quote, and I've interviewed him. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling author, Homecoming, and he's been uh, such a pioneer in this movement for years and years. He writes, Thomas More is one of the most profound spiritual writers of our time. We've all been discouraged by neat, tidy self-help dogmatism, and More refuses to succumb to the commercialism of simplistic, superficial, and subjective solutions. More helps us to see that the soul has its own agenda that takes us beyond our expectations and is always on the side of the abundant life. Boy, is that beautiful. He's a good writer. Beautiful and also true. Also yes. true. Thank you so much. It's it really been an honor to interview you, Thomas, really. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, you know, we could go on like this for a long time. Yes, well, stay on the line for a minute because I definitely want to have you on again. Thank <laughs> so you. Stand. All right, folks. Um, this uh, concludes this portion of Patricia Raskin Positive Living. I'll be with you next week right here on Voice America, America's Voice. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week. We'll be right back.